It's middle of the night in the temple. Eli the priest is sound asleep and Samuel, the young boy, his mother Hannah, dedicated to the Lord, is, is there. And he's also sleeping in the temple. And that's where our story begins. Things are very quiet. It's actually, by the way, not the temple. It's the tabernacle. The temple hasn't been built yet. But it tells us the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. That the Lord called Samuel. And he said, Here I am. And then he ran to Eli. And he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Best words that Eli will speak, by the way. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. And then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. He said, What is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me, of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything, and he had nothing from him. And he, that is Eli, said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Father, this is a precious story. 
one of those stories that answers the question, Lord, do you really speak to us? Lord, is it possible for us to hear your voice? At times, Father, when when the word seems to be rare, can we hear you? Lord, this is so much our desire, not so that we can walk around saying, Wow, I've I've heard from God. But so that we can know where to walk. We so desire your leading and your guidance in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment lives. We so much want to know your will for us, Father, personally, individually, and collectively as as a fellowship, a church body. And as Christians across the board, we we want to know your will. We want to hear you. Father, I pray that you will give us eyes into Samuel's story, vision and insight, as we think this through, to consider how we might position ourselves, Father, to hear you better, to be more in tune with your voice that we might follow you as your children. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the, for the opportunity to be in your word, which in and of itself is such a powerful voice into our lives. Speak now, Holy Spirit. Speak among us and teach us. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's truly one of the most precious stories in the Bible. It's a favorite Sunday school story. I I was thinking about this when I was a kid. Anything with kids in it caught my attention. I'm sure you were probably that way. If I was walking through the living room or the, the, the family room area and the TV was on and my father was watching the news, I just kept walking. Kind of like my kids do now. There were adults on the screen... I could really care less. But if there were children on the screen, if they were watching a movie, even an old black and white movie, but there were kids there, I always sat down to watch. There are kids. I knew this could relate better to me. There were kids involved. I watched commercials are that way. If there were kids in the commercials, as a kid, I was there. If there were adults in the commercials, that's when I went to get the snacks. I wanted to see where kids were. And in Sunday school growing up, if the story was about kids, I was caught. A lot of the other stories I kind of missed, but the stories of children, they just caught my attention because I thought, hey, this could be me. I could see myself in the tabernacle, laying in my bed as young Samuel. I I could be there. I was instantly transported. Thinking, what would that be like? It's the middle of the night. And there were times as a child, in the middle of the night, in the darkness, I'd lay there in my bed and go, is he going to speak to me? I'll just say, here I am. There's something about this story that captures the hearts of children. But we need to lift this story out of Sunday school and squarely place it where it belongs, and that's in real life. This is a real life story. It is a historical account that actually happened to Samuel when he was called to be a prophet of the Lord. And we discover you don't have to be degreed, credentialed, or well-schooled to be called by the Lord. You don't have to be fully grown. You don't have to be mature. You don't have to have it all together, at least in the eyes of the church, to be called by the Lord, to be used by the Lord. Young Samuel, just a boy, when God called him, and when all Israel recognized that he was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. 
And what's amazing about this story to me is it is a story of how to hear God. If the word be true, then we should be able to hear God now, just as Samuel heard Him then. And Jesus said in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice. Well, that's just a metaphor, Rick. Well, yeah, the sheep part, sure. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, speaks and is heard by His sheep. He makes it clear that His sheep hear His voice, and I can tell you by experience that I have heard His voice. Wait a minute. You're saying you hear voices? No, I, I heard a voice. I've heard one. I wouldn't be here at the bridge this morning if I hadn't. I was thinking originally the bridge wouldn't be here if I hadn't, but I, I have a sense that the bridge probably would be here if I hadn't because God would just find someone who was listening because He wanted this fellowship to be here. But I'm here this morning and have been for the last few years because I heard His voice. That's an awfully difficult thing to convince people of. Especially people who don't believe that that's possible. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You're just saying God told you to do that because you want to legitimize what you're doing. But oftentimes in Christianity, well, we have some problems. Christians will shun the idea of actually hearing God's voice because they're not sure they can really believe it. Or, or Christians will use the God told me so so often that we don't really know if He did. Well, the Lord told me to do this. God said that. And we, we say those things to try and make our actions a little more legitimate to other believers. But in all of this silliness and, and human presumption, if we can set it aside, we still have to deal with the fact that Scripture tells us we can hear God's voice. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. It's not just the knocking that we hear. If you hear my voice, so not only is Jesus knocking, but apparently he's calling out. Anybody home? Hello? Hello? Are you listening? Seven times in the book of Revelation, Jesus calls out. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even an eighth time, later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, long about verse 9 or so, it tells us that he who has an ear, let him hear. Not what the Spirit says to the churches, because at that point the church is gone. The church has been taken up. But he's still calling, even at that point, in the middle of the tribulation, he is calling to the world, calling out his voice, trying to be heard. The question isn't whether God speaks. The question is, are we tuned in? Are we tuned in? At this very moment, though we be silent, there are voices clamoring through this barn. There are hundreds of voices right now that if we were tuned in, we could hear them. AM and FM radio. Radio waves, satellite waves are, are going through the barn. Wi-Fi internet connections are passing through in cyberspace. Cellular connections. Blackberries. People are trying to contact others. And by the way, if your BlackBerry or your phone goes off, just ignore it. They don't need to talk to you right now. But all we have to do to hear these voices is tune in to the right frequency. Once we get tuned into that frequency, we can hear very clearly. And it's the same with the Lord. You might say, okay, well, how do we do that? How do we tune into God's frequency? What is God's frequency? 
Is it K-G-O-D? What is His frequency? How do we tune in so that we can better hear the voice of God? And with Samuel, we have the story of a boy who hears his voice at a time when people were not tuned in. At a time when we're told word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. People were not listening and apparently God was pretty quiet. But not to Samuel. And because Samuel is tuned in, because he hears the voice of the Lord, he is enabled to become the mouthpiece for the Lord. He becomes God's prophet. Now we introduced this book on Wednesday night and we talked about the fact that something is shifting in Israel. There is a change happening. An undercurrent that is subtle that you would miss if you were just kind of reading on. The days of the judges are about over. Eli is considered to be a judge. Samuel will be considered to be the very last of the judges. But Samuel shifts from judge to prophet. We have a shift from theocracy where God is king to monarchy where man is king. That happens in the book of Samuel. And in this shift, Israel doesn't get better. Oh, they may become a stronger nation, at least with David and then with his son Solomon. They may have their glory days, but Israel does not get better by the shift. They leave God as their king and cling to man as their king. And you'll see as we go through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you will watch and see what happens to a people who desires a man as a king. But with the failure of the theocracy, failure not on God's part but on the people's part, the priesthood becomes lessened and God begins to speak to his people not through the priests but through the prophets. He begins to call out individual men and say, go and tell the people this message. And he does it right here. And he does it through a young boy. Through Samuel. What's interesting to me about this is that just because the people aren't listening doesn't mean the Lord has stopped speaking. Note that, my friends. Just because the people aren't listening doesn't mean God is not speaking. He's speaking constantly. He is trying to get His message, His word to us constantly. He is trying to speak into a lost and Christ-rejecting world constantly. Whether or not people are listening, His voice, His voice is there. And He is talking to us. I want to ask and attempt to answer five questions this morning. Just moving through uh, the third chapter of 1 Samuel. To understand the calling of Samuel and how better to tune into the voice of the Lord. And the first question is this. To whom did God speak? To whom did God speak? Verse 1 says, The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. The word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. That the lamp, of God, the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Interesting opening to this story about Samuel. Two people are present as the story begins. An old man and a young boy. A seasoned priest and a boy who does not even yet really know the Lord. And God chooses to speak to the boy. And the contrast is interesting. It's crystal clear. Eli is the priest. He is trained. He is credentialed. He is degreed. He's been to seminary. He's gone through all the study and all the the, the books. And and he knows his office. And in his position at high priest, you would think that God would speak to the priest he had in the past. 
It was through the priest. If the, if the people wanted word from the Lord, they went to the priest. And they asked him. And the priest would pray and go before the Lord. Why not the priest this time? Why is it to a young boy? Why does God bypass the, the old pro and speak to the young boy? Jesus says in Mark 10:15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. We've talked about this before. It's not childishness. It's child-likeness. Like a child. We're not talking about innocence, because kids aren't. You know that. They show that pretty early in life. We're not talking about gullibility. We're talking about receptivity. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. How does a child receive something? Children are amazingly receptive. You tell them something and their first inclination is to believe you. You tell an adult something and our first inclination is to go, prove it to me. Our first inclination is to question. A child just believes it. What child has trouble receiving the news about a fat man in a red suit squeezing his rotund rear end down a chimney? Kids believe that easily. What child has trouble suspending doubt while watching Tinkerbell fly from the top of the Matterhorn down and, and back and forth behind the castle at Disneyland? What child has trouble believing that's true? Look, it's, I, we were there at Disneyland just a few weeks back now and at night watching the Tinkerbell thing. And by the way, when, when I was a kid, Tinkerbell got on that, that zip line basically at the top of the Matterhorn and just went straight down. That was it. That's all the Tinkerbell you got. You know what they're doing now? She goes down the line, and then all of a sudden, and we were kind of looking, and there were trees. All of a sudden, she disappeared. And I went, she fell. <laughs> and then, she came back up and went to the other side of the castle and went down and up. And she's going back. But they've, they've got her on this pulley system and everything now that's just. And kids, I heard children around us going, Look, there's Tinkerbell. I didn't hear a single child go, There's a girl dressed up in a suit on a zip line. <laughs> Because they believe, if you tell them, they receive it. There is humble receptivity for a child. Jesus says, receive the kingdom of God that way. You're not going to get it otherwise. You've got to receive the way a child receives. Now granted, Santa Claus, Tinkerbell, that's the stuff of fantasy. But kids have an amazing ability to believe, primarily because they haven't yet been tarnished and tainted with reasoned scholarship. Or worse, with position and importance. The further down the line we go, and the more studied we are, and by the way, I am for Bible study, you know that, but what I've discovered though is that the more you're in the actual Word of God, the more childlike you become. The more you're in the books of man trying to figure out the Word of God, the more positioned you become, and the less childlike you become. Eli represents that. The old order. He's the figurehead of the priesthood, which at this point in Israel's history had a firm grasp of its pompous position. We are the priests. We are the priests. I'm too sexy for my ephod. I don't know if they would sing that, but, but they really thought highly of themselves. They were in position. They demanded respect. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know where it comes from. But... But, he, but Samuel, on the other hand, Samuel has a childlike receptivity. The voice says, Samuel, and bink, he's tuned in. 
I hear, I hear someone. He runs to wake up Eli, which must have, by the way, been really frustrating for Eli. I've been there when that little body goes kind of across our bedroom and it's dark and I barely see it. It kind of freaks me out, you know? A little 10 year old head goes bopping by the bed. What is it now, Hayden? I'm thirsty. Great, get water! What is it now, Hayden? I had a bad dream. Well, great. All right, let's sing. Let's sing my favorite things and go back to bed. You know, let your father sleep, please. By the way, the idea of childlike receptivity has absolutely nothing to do with age, but everything to do with your spiritual maturity. As far as the word is concerned, as far as the spirit is concerned, the more mature you and I are spiritually, the more childlike we become. Paul puts it this way. He says in 1 Corinthians 13.11, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, to read that verse and then to read Jesus' verse about childlike receiving the kingdom, you'd think that Paul is contradicting Jesus, but he's not at all. Because Paul is pointing out the more we mature in Christ, the more childlike we become. The more we approach God with expectancy and wonder, receiving what He has for us. It's the same Paul who says in Romans 8.15, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy. Hebrew children today in Israel call their dad, Abba, Daddy. And Paul, the same Paul who put away childish ways, is crying out, Abba, Father. Because the more you mature in Christ, the more childlike you truly become. I ask you this morning, can you say Abba to God? Are you you comfortable approaching God from the position of a child? God speaks to the childlike and to the person who has childlike receptivity. Second question. When did God speak to Samuel? When did God speak to Samuel? At the very beginning, and we, we can't miss this, verse 1, it says, The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. Note this, and I don't think it's by accident. We're not told that the boy Samuel is ministering for the Lord, but to the Lord. There's a big difference between for the Lord and to the Lord. Keep your finger there and turn over to Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel chapter 44. Samuel ministers to the Lord. And you might say, well, Rick, you, you sometimes pick out these little words. Two, four, who cares? I mean, just, he, he was ministering. Isn't that the point? No. There is a difference between minister to, ministry to the Lord and ministry for the Lord, as we see very clearly in Ezekiel 44, starting in verse 10. Talking about the priesthood, it says, The Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Okay, so the Levites are about to be punished for something here. Verse 11 says, Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. 
Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. Now watch this. They shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor to come near to me to any of the holy things, my holy things, to the things that are most holy. But they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house of all its service and of all that shall be done in it. Do you see the distinction? He says there is actually a punishment for the Levites. They will no longer minister to me. They're still going to perform the sacrifices. They're still going to perform the duties of the temple, of the house of the Lord. But they're not going to minister to me any longer. And to make it even more clear, read verse 15. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. The Lord declares here in Ezekiel that ministry, ministry to the Lord is better than ministry for the Lord. In fact, he even says that ministry for the Lord is punishment by comparison to ministry to the Lord. Ministry to the Lord, gang, that is holy of holies ministry. That's going all the way into the most holy place to be in the presence of the Lord. You see, when the high priest went in there on that one day a year on Yom Kippur to offer atonement for the people, on that one day a year, the ministry there, that was to the Lord. The ministry in the holy place, it was to the Lord, keeping His lamps lit, the table of showbread spread, the incense going up before the Father. That was ministry to the Lord. Outside in the courtyard... Where the altar was, was ministry for the Lord. It was ministry to the people. The people couldn't go where the Lord was inside the internal courts. They had to stay on the outside. And it was ministry for the people because that's where the sacrifices happened. That's where the smoke went up. Where, Where the blood was offered of the animals. There it was ministry for the Lord because it was to the people. God says there's a difference. When did God speak to Samuel? When he was ministering to the Lord. I want you to think about this. Ministry to the Lord is personal, intimate, private, and it's not on stage, it's backstage. Think about the temple and the way it was set up. If the temple had a stage for all the people to witness, it was the outer court where the altar was. Backstage would be the Holy of Holies. Backstage to you and to me, the, the unseen area, the behind the scenes, was the most holy place. Front stage was the altar for the people. If you want to do ministry to the Lord, and by the way, anybody can do ministry to the Lord. And we go to seminary and training to do ministry for the Lord. I stand up on Sunday morning, this really hit me this week. Every Sunday I am doing ministry. When I teach, it's ministry for the Lord. It's not ministry to the Lord. 
When I lead worship, especially if my mindset is making sure that the music is good for you and the experience is good for you, that's ministry for the Lord. That is not ministry to the Lord. And we are confused as people when we look at pastors and say, oh, he's ministering to the Lord. No, they're not. We are ministering for the Lord. You know when ministry to the Lord happens in my life? When no one else is around. When I am all by myself and there's no one there to see where my heart is, what I'm saying, what I'm doing. It's so easy to fool you all and I love you, but it's just true. I can stand up here and I can look holy and I can trick you into thinking all kinds of things about me while I'm doing ministry for the Lord. Just like the priest. Man, when they were doing the sacrifice and you know they were singing their songs and they were there in front of all the people. Wow, holy guys. But behind the scenes, what was going on? Ezekiel 44 tells us, not good stuff. And because of that, the Levites, for the most part, would be relegated only to center stage. They were not going to be allowed to go backstage anymore. Only the sons of Zadok. But backstage is where the action is. Backstage is where the joy is. Backstage is where the relationship is. Ministry to the Lord. I tell you that because it is so easy as Christians to start getting busy doing ministry for the Lord. I'm signed up for this, that, and the other. I'm doing so much for the kingdom. I am always serving, and serving is good. But in the midst of all the service, do you do ministry to the Lord? It's just being in prayer. It's worshiping Him when no one else is there, when it's nobody but you and Jesus. I love this story. In Mark chapter 6, we see the story of Jesus sending the apostles out to do ministry for the Lord. Power training, I call it. It says in Mark 6.13, they were casting out demons and they were anointing oil with oil, many sick people, and they were healing them. Good stuff was happening. Verse 30 of that same chapter tells us, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to Him all that they had done and taught. This is what I call woohoo ministry. Woohoo! We're healing people. Woohoo! We're raising people from the dead. Woohoo! We're anointing and people are getting healed. And they come back to Jesus and that's what they say. Woohoo! It's been awesome. They are pumped. They're jazzed. It's fun, tangible, exhilarating ministry for the Lord. Look at what we've done, Jesus. This is great. And what does Jesus say? Mark 6.31, He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place. And rest for a while. I don't even know if the apostles needed rest at this point. I wouldn't have. Typically when I've had a real good morning, I get home <laughs> like this. Wednesday nights it takes me two hours just to wind down because man, it's so exciting to be in the Word, to be doing ministry for the Lord. We're in contact with people and seeing things happen, come out of our shepherd's meetings and, and, and there's just an excitement about what God is doing. Man, that's good stuff. And I'm exhilarated. And the apostles, by their own words, are just, they're talking about all they had done and taught. It's great. They don't even, I believe, realize they need to take a break. And Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a quiet place. Verse 32 says, they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Well, they weren't completely by themselves. They were with Jesus. Now listen to me on this. In Mark chapter 6, if you read through the chapter, something else had happened. You see, Jesus had sent the apostles out to do this power ministry, but while they were out doing the power ministry, Jesus got word that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded. Now, how would you feel? 
Mark chapter 6 details one of the longest days in Jesus' entire ministry life where so much went on. And when the apostles come back and Jesus has this word on his mind, John the Baptist has now been killed. My cousin is now dead. And the apostles come back and they're talking about the kingdom and all these great things that they've done. And Jesus says, come away with me. Come away. Come away. I'm not sure the apostles needed it so much as Jesus did. Oh, wait wait a minute. Wait, you're saying Jesus needed the apostles? Absolutely he needed the apostles. Remember, he was walking in the flesh just like you and me. Exhausted. Tired. Distraught. Certainly his heart was aching over the loss, the murder of his cousin. The apostles want to talk about ministry for the Lord, but I can't help but wonder if it was Jesus himself who needed time with his friends, ministry to the Lord. Come away. Come away. Let's just get one-on-one. Just you, just me. Well, Rick, by the indication of that, sounds like you're saying I've got something that the Lord wants. You do. He wants you. He wants you. And over and over in the scriptures, we see there's a difference. You can do all kinds of things for the Lord, but He wants you. You can be very, very busy as a servant for the Lord, but He wants you. He wants that intimacy, that quiet, that that time where it's just the two of you together. That's His greatest desire, at least as I read it in the Bible. So here's young Samuel, and he's ministering to the Lord. But you might notice down in verse 7, an interesting verse. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. How in the world can you minister to the Lord when you don't even know Him? By all accounts, Samuel's not even saved. In fact, J. Vernon McGee says the first two of the four calls of God to Samuel in this chapter, the first two calls are calls to salvation. Calls to acknowledgement. And then the third and the fourth are calls with a message. But at first he's calling Samuel to get his attention, to get him saved, because, as verse 7 says, he didn't even know the Lord. And say, well, wait, well, how can he be in the temple there, in the tabernacle, ministering to the Lord if he didn't know the Lord? <laughs> Samuel didn't know him personally, but he knew who the Lord was. He had never heard God speak before. But he certainly knew about the Lord, I would think, from his mother, Hannah. We're told in another place that after Hannah dropped him off and and gave him back to the Lord, and he served there in the tabernacle, that every year Hannah would come up with with a new linen robe that she had stitched and sewn for her son. As he's growing older, she's making a rope. She comes up and gives it to him. And I imagine those were precious times between Samuel and Hannah as they talked. And Hannah revealed the story of, of his, what she would call, miraculous birth. She prayed. She was barren. Chapter 1 tells us that wonderful story. She cried out to the Lord, and he heard her, and so she named him Samuel. It's hard to say it like that. Samuel, she named him Ask of God. Heard of God. Samuel knew about the Lord. But I want you to get this. Because ministry to the Lord, sometimes we think we can't get to that point of ministry to the Lord until we've heard from Him. Until we've had some kind of experience with Him. The Lord allows Samuel the pleasure of ministry to him before Samuel had received anything from him. 
Samuel had had no experience with the Lord and yet he was ministering to the Lord. He was keeping the lamps lit. He he was praying. He was worshiping. Ministry to the Lord. Samuel hadn't gotten any dreams or visions. No special messages or experiences. No response whatsoever. But he was just faithfully, as a child, ministering to the Lord. It's important because a lot of times we take a quid pro quo approach to God. You scratch my back, Lord, and I'll teach Sunday school. You do for me, and then I will be able, I will be enabled to do for you. And in Samuel's case, the Lord is allowing him to serve and to minister to the Lord long before he has an experience with the Lord. I call that reactionary service versus resolute boldness. Reactionary service, gang, is when I say, I'll wait until God shows himself, and then I'll go there. I'll wait until, until I see God working and then I'll join Him. That's reactionary. I am reacting to what God is doing. And that's not a bad thing. But on the other hand, there is resolute boldness where someone says, I'm going in. I haven't heard from God, but I'm going to pray to God. I haven't had a, a physical manifestation of God, but I am going to worship Him. Why? Because I know He's real. Because I believe His Word. Because I have been impacted by other Christians and other believers. And I know this is truth. And so I am going to minister. I am going to choose. Even in days when the Word is rare. Even in silence. I will choose to minister to the Lord. And let Him decide when He wants to return that. It's resolute boldness. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Confidence, boldness, the writer of Hebrews says. Go before the throne. You can approach the throne of grace with boldness because of what Jesus has done. No waiting around. You never have to wait to minister to the Lord. But aren't we supposed to wait? Didn't we say strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord? We're just saying that. Don't we always talk about we got to wait upon the Lord? Yes. You always need to wait on the Lord if you are intent to doing service or ministry for the Lord. Because you want to do it His way. But you never have to wait to do ministry to the Lord. You never have to wait to worship. You never have to wait to see if God shows up to be alone with Him, to pray, to talk to Him. Ministry, by the way, to the Lord, and I make such a big deal out of this because this opens our ears. It opens our ears to ministry for the Lord. Let me say that again. Ministry to the Lord opens our ears for ministry for the Lord. How so? Watch this. Acts 13, verse 2 says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What were they doing? They were ministering to the Lord. They had no idea what they were supposed to do, where they were supposed to go. They were just intent on ministering to the Lord. And while they were doing that, just like with Samuel, the Lord called. So you can at any point minister to the Lord and wait to minister for the Lord. That's a better pattern for all of us. What does that really mean? Ministry to the Lord, it's worship. It's prayer. It's expression of love and adoration. And it's given solely and completely to Jesus and it's not for anyone else's benefit. Ministry to the Lord when no one else is watching. Question number three. Where did God speak to Samuel? 
Where did he speak to Samuel? Verse 3 says, The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now that, that word that's translated temple there probably should be house. It's a different word in the Hebrew than the word that's temple later when we talk about Solomon's temple. It was actually built there in Jerusalem. It's it's house and it refers again to the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the house of God. Where did God speak to Samuel? In the house of God, the temple, so to speak, there in Shiloh. Temple's always been a symbol of greatest importance to the Jewish people. I don't know if you saw this week on the Temple Mount, the, uh, the Palestinians had, had dug a, a real long, deep trench across the Temple Mount because they want to lay some pipes to get down to their, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And as they're digging, and it's illegal by the way, they're not allowed to dig. It's illegal, but they do it anyway because what's, what are the Jewish people going to do? What are the Israelis going to do? Try and stop them? Go ahead, try to stop us. We'll start a new intifada. We'll, we'll throw up our hands and start chucking rocks down on the, on the worshippers down below. Go ahead, try and stop. So they, they dig this trench. And it was thought that this trench might be actually digging through some artifacts of the second temple. For as they dug this trench, they had to go through three different walls. And the Israeli Antiquities Department was freaking out. And the police department was trying to stop them. And, and oh no, it was one of those moments this week where once again, on the Temple Mount, this tiny little dot in the middle of the world... Tension rose. And I was watching it closely because I thought, okay, you know, World War III is just one stone away on the Temple Mount. Why is it such a big deal? What's, who cares? It's a big deal, gang, because the Jewish people recognize and realize that's where the Temple was. That was the last place God spoke to them, at least by their understanding. That was it. However... Jesus said to us in John 4.21 An hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus said no longer is the temple mount, the place. No longer is the temple where worship will happen, but worship will be of the heart. Ministry to the Lord. It's going to happen there. Ministry in the temple. And you might say, well, okay, if God spoke to Samuel in the temple and Jesus said the hour is coming when worship won't be at the temple, what value is us is that to us today? And you guys always ask such great questions. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, You come to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also are living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Samuel heard the Lord in the temple. You and I hear the Lord. One of the best places to hear the Lord, to be tuned in, is in the temple. What, my body? No. The house of God. We are the temple. The fellowship. In the fellowship of other believers. In places where you are gathered together, maybe small groups, or, or Wednesday night where we're worshiping and talking, or Sunday morning, when we are gathered together with other believers and the temple is being built together, living stones as a spiritual house, that is a place to hear the Lord. 
I'm not saying you can't hear from Him on your own, but if you want to tune in, if you want your receptivity to go up to the voice of God, you need to be where the temple is. You need to gather in the temple. As a child myself, I think back, and I don't remember a lot about kindergarten. I, mean, I remember a few things. I remember swallowing quarters. And I remember, I remember getting busted and sent to the, the teacher's lounge you know, because I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I remember my friend Tim who had the coolest black cowboy hat and cowboy boots and chaps. He had the whole outfit. And I remember really coveting that every time he wore it to school. But that's about it. You know what's interesting to me? I remember church. I remember vividly faces, people. And I only went to church once or twice a week. I was at kindergarten every single day. But I remembered church. It's in that fellowship. There's something that happens there that cannot happen anywhere else. Jesus says, Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there. And that's it. I'm there. I didn't know. But I know now. Jesus was there. I don't know if he was bored or not, but he was there. (laughs) Receiving worship. His Spirit flowing in and among His people as they gathered, as they loved each other, as they prayed for each other, as they cared for each other. In the temple, He was there. And it's here among us that God speaks. It's why we need each other so desperately. It's why a church fellowship is so important. It's why we're launching small groups here, honestly, in the next couple or three weeks. It's happening. Now, I know it's been four years in the making, but it's happening. It's why we get together midweek and don't just wait till the next Sunday. It's why we have women's meetings and it's why youth group meets on Tuesday night. You want to become tuned in to God's frequency, go to the temple. Not the barn, the temple. It's with other believers that we begin to hear God. So who did he speak to? He spoke to a child, a receptive child. When did God speak? When Samuel was ministering to the Lord. And where did he speak? In the temple. Number four, why did God speak to Samuel? Verse four says, the Lord called Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again, you little twerp. So he went and he lay, I added that. He went and he lay down. Verse 6, the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. My aching back. I added that too. Verse 7, now Samuel did not know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli discerned that that the Lord was calling the boy. This was not the most convenient of times, especially for Eli. He's an old man. He is a rather overweight man, which you're going to find out in the next chapter or so. He's a very heavy guy. He's laying in bed. He's trying to get a night's rest, and he's being interrupted again and again by this child. I can't imagine it being anything other than downright irritating for this old man. And we know it's late at night because verse 3 tells us something interesting. It says that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. What's that talking about? It's talking about the lampstand. The lampstand in the holy place, not in the holy of holies, but in the holy place where there was on one side the table of showbread, on the other side was the, um, the altar of incense, and then there was the lampstand. 
with seven oil lamps on the top that lit the whole inside of the holy place. The lampstand, part of the priestly duty, was to keep those lamps lit. And they would light them every morning. They would make sure that they were lit every morning. If, if they ran out of oil, they would relight them. And the oil would burn through the night. In fact, Kyle and Delich write that this phrase, that the lamp had not yet gone out, this phrase is equivalent to, quote, before the morning dawn. It, it was a phrase used, before the morning dawn. The lamp had not yet gone out, before the morning dawn, because the oil in the lampstand burned through the night, and the lamps would be trimmed, and the oil replaced in the morning. So we know it is the middle of the night, or even later, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, the lamp hadn't gone out yet. It's an inconvenient time. Eli's eyes are dim. I believe it's telling us he doesn't even know if the, if the light is lit or not. He can't tell if the lampstand is burning. And Bible students, you've got to know this. Understand, the lampstand in Scripture is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And in how the Holy Spirit works and moves through the temple, the church. There are times... When we, like Eli, have eyes that are dim and we think the lamp is out. We think the lamp is not burning. We think word from the Lord is rare. My eyes get dim in despairing situations, but the lamp is not out. My heart is weary with exhaustion from life, but the lamp is not out. My mind can get so full of so many voices, but the lamp is not out. The lamp of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us there is a day when the lamp will go out. Oh, not that the Holy Spirit will cease, but the lamp will go out of this world. There's a day coming when the Spirit will be removed. We need to understand, the way the Holy Spirit works in Scripture is in the Old Testament days, the Spirit was given on occasion to different people and sometimes, as we'll see with King Saul, taken away from people. In the era of the New Testament, this age of grace, the Holy Spirit comes upon and stays with the church, with Christians. You and I have something that the average Israelite couldn't claim, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if in fact we are in Christ, which is amazing. But there is a day coming when things will go back to Old Testament standards. That time of tribulation when the church is called out, taken up, raptured as we talked about a week ago. And when the church goes, the Spirit goes. How do you know that, Rick? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. You can read that whole chapter. It's fascinating. It tells us that the restraining influence, the influence that restrains the tide of evil and antichrist in the world today will be removed. And when the restraining influence is removed, evil will run rampant. And this world will go back to being like it was before the age of grace, before the advent of the Holy Spirit in the church, before there was a strength. And I've said this before, we know the world is bad. Can you imagine what the world would be like without the presence of God's Holy Spirit? You think it's bad now? There is something, there is a power of God that is restraining that tide of evil. But the lamp is not yet out. And the lamp wasn't out at this time with Samuel. It's the middle of the night. It's, it's very late. Why, why does he call Samuel at night? I wonder if it's because it's the only time when things are quiet. For us, it's the only time when the TV is shut off. It's the only time when the phone's not ringing. When the computers are shut down. And by the way, 
I'm a broken record at home about this issue, but I'm concerned to see how computers are replacing relationships. Computers are replacing real relationships with fake ones in the way that we interact with people. I, I just want to share this with you um, quickly. I know the hour is late, but from Real Simple Family magazine. I just copied this off. Cheryl pointed this out to me the other day. And there are certain websites that we do not allow our kids to go to. And we have this thing called Safe Eyes that is a website blocker that also informs us about where our kids go. Not because they're not trustworthy, but because they need, like we need, accountability. And so I I was reading through this, and there are certain places, again, I I just, I don't want our kids to go. Computer literate, it says, learn the lingo of your kids' favorite web activities and earn points over your own dinner conversation. And here are some of the websites they suggest you go to and learn about so you can talk to your kids. Club Penguin, a virtual world where every player takes the role of a pear-shaped penguin. Pretty harmless. And of course, every two weeks, a pen is hidden in the game, and lucky penguins find them and get to wear them. Um, You can go to The Sims... Get a little more mature. A video game that simulates real life. Your character has a home, a family, a job. And kids love that the Sims have to bathe or they develop a halo of green dust. Okay, so you can go find out. What about Webkins? Found out about this one from Hayden, actually, uh, about a year ago. What you do is it's an online world where you can care for a virtual version of a stuffed pet. You buy the stuffed pet in the store and then you have a virtual version online. You can take care of your little pet. You know, instead of a real dog, a web dog. And they're a whole lot cleaner. <laughs> they are. You just wipe down the screen and you're good to go. Or go to MySpace, a social networking site. Ages such as 132 years old are, are seen on there because MySpace requires users to be at least 14 to sign in. So younger kids make up preposterous numbers to signal that they're underage. You go to MySpace and you can, you can find a 132-year-old kid and you know that kid's under 14. Have you gone to MySpace? I have. And it's awful. And some of you have MySpace accounts and I'm not, I'm not here to judge, but I am absolutely shocked at what I see there just in the ads for MySpace. What people will put on MySpace. Teenagers today get on MySpace, they video themselves doing things that they wouldn't do in front of their kids or classmates at school, but on MySpace, hey, it's okay. It's like taking a diary where the girls used to write guys some, but not so, girls would write in their diaries, lock them up with a key, hide them under the pillow 30, 40 years ago. Now that stuff is on MySpace for the whole world to be welcomed in, to see and experience. Or World of Warcraft which I know some of you play, an online fantasy game in which two factions battle in the mythical worlds of Azeroth and Outland, and some families get on and they play World of Warcraft together, and it's great because they're interacting. No, they're not. No, they're not. It's virtual. It's false. It's not real. No, I'm not saying computers are a bad thing. If I didn't have computers, half of my study, I, I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't learn what I learned in the time that I have to learn it if I didn't have my computer. I thank God that I've got the internet because there's so much information that I've got Logos Bible Study software because, man, it's like having 40 books on my desk open all at the same time. Wonderful stuff, but you've got to be cautious. Internet life is not real. You've got to turn these computers off. I fear that Satan has found another way, another frequency, by which he can interrupt the frequency of God's voice. 
little side note, sorry, I get a little passionate about that. But why, why again, why does God speak to Samuel in the middle of the night? Why does he speak to Samuel? And the answer is simply this, because Samuel gets out of bed. I'm not sure Eli would have. It would have been a hassle. Roll out of bed. Get up and put the slippers on. You know how hard it is the older we get to get out of bed. And so he calls the boy who does get out of bed. What I'm saying is this. Samuel responds immediately every time God calls him. He'll continue to throughout his life. Every time the Lord says, Samuel, yes, here I am. What, Lord? Every time he says, Samuel, what? I'm ready. What? What do you need me to do? He responds to the Lord. He is responsive to the Lord. In the middle of the night, when you can't sleep and God's calling, do you get out of bed or do you go pop an ambient and go back to sleep? You know, how often do we shut God down because, you know, it's inconvenient. It's just not a good time. I'm speaking literally and figuratively. Sometimes He does call in the middle of the night. If you wake up in the middle of the night, don't assume it's indigestion. It might be the Lord waking you up because the house is quiet and the computers are off and the phones aren't ringing and nothing can interrupt you. It may be the Lord. I can never hear the Lord in my life. Start just listening and if in the middle of the night, and I am speaking specifically, literally, in the middle of the night, if you wake up, stop for a minute before you roll right back over and say, Lord, is that you? Well, great, Rick, that's great, but I have to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get to work. God knows that. He knows. And He will give you the strength and the energy you need when you need it. Other times, God will call in the middle of the work day, and we just don't have time to pause and listen. Other times, He will call in your own conscience. He will direct you one way or the other, but we say, ah, I don't want to go that way. And James said in James 4.17, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does it not to him, it is sin. Are we listening? God calls Samuel. It's the middle of the night. He responds instantaneously, immediately. He is ready to go. How responsive am I to the voice of God? Samuel heard and got out of bed. I love the old Keith Green song where he says, and I quote, Jesus rose from the dead. And you, you can't even get out of bed. And he's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. Well, the outcome of all this on Samuel's life is awesome. Skip over to verse 19. We'll finish here. Then Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. That word fail is literally fall to the ground. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The last and final question, how did God speak to Samuel? By the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. You want to hear God? Let none of his words fall to the ground. Which means we don't pick and choose which of those words work best for us. We don't let any of his words fall to the ground. We don't reinterpret his word. We don't retranslate his word or retune his word 
through the transistor of our personal theology or our traditions or our religious background, let none of his words fall to the ground, even if some of those words are different than what you were trained up to believe. Let none of his words fall to the ground. got an email from Rebecca Roberts toward the end of the week. and It was great because it just confirmed what, what, what was here. She was talking about Samuel's name. She'd been doing some research on the different names of the people in 1 Samuel and, and saying how Samuel, meaning heard of God because Hannah was heard by the Lord when she asked him for a son. And Rebecca wrote the following. She said, It's interesting to me that Samuel first encounters, Samuel heard, heard of God, first encounters God by hearing Him. Not by seeing Him. The first experience was hearing She wrote, he didn't have a vision, he heard him. Now watch this. In verse 10 it says, Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. The Lord came and stood. The first three times, the Lord just called verbally, vocally, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. The fourth time, we're told he came and stood the word stood in the Hebrew, it's yatsab. It means to stand, to present oneself, to station oneself. The Lord had called three times, the fourth time he stations himself right there by Samuel's bedside. And then we're told back in verse 21 that the Lord revealed himself to, Shan- to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, no one can see God and live, right? The Bible tells us that. You can't see God and live. Exodus 33 verse 20. But we're also told in John chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. And then John writes in verse 18 of John 1 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. Who is the Word? It's Jesus Christ. The Word is Jesus. The Word. The Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word. Verse 10, The Lord came and stood and called as at other times. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying, and I think you know what I'm saying, that Jesus showed up. That Jesus is standing at little Samuel's bedside to express the Word of the Lord. He's there once again. You know, it just seems like every time we study the Word of God, Jesus gets in the way. He's always there. He pops in. He shows up. And the Word is none other than Jesus Christ. And I remind you of our opening verse, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now God will continue to speak to Samuel throughout his life, and he will continue to follow. But Jesus said... In Revelation 3.20 again, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with me. I will dine with him and he will dine with me. And when you go out to dinner with friends or families, don't you go out to talk? Sometimes Cheryl and I will go out to dinner just to talk. Because at home the phone's ringing. (laughs) Things are going on as we get out. Or the cell phone starts to go off, but that's a totally different problem. I want you to understand that Revelation 3.20 is not an evangelism verse. 
When Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is not a verse of evangelism. Jesus is speaking to the church. Oh, it's true that he knocks on the door of unbelievers. It's true. He's trying to get the attention. And if they respond, they can be saved. But that's not who he's talking to here. He's talking specifically to the church in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, which is the church of today. And he is knocking. And he is speaking. And he is trying to get our attention. Which takes us back to the original statement that the problem is not that God is not speaking. The problem is that we're not listening. Jesus says, if you will listen, I will come in and and we'll have dinner together. We'll talk. It's ministry to the Lord. We'll be together. Are we tuned in? Are we listening? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to hear your voice so desperately. Lord, we know we're not going to hear your voice in the clamor and the clatter and the noise of this world. And so I pray, Father, that you will create, Lord, opportunities in this next week, spaces of time where nothing else is going on, that we might hear you. Lord, there are some that you need to wake up in the middle of the night. I ask you to do this. And if that's me, so be it. Would you this week, Father, give us the chance to hear you, to stop what we're doing long enough in all of our busyness, even in our ministry to the Lord, or or the ministry for the Lord, Father, would you give us pause to hear you and to be before you. In Jesus' name. Amen.